Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. And this is going to be fun. I read some things and I watched some things on top of that. I didn't just have a slack off week. Wow, you were, I'm guessing it's no longer hot as balls in your province. It's actually not hot as balls. It's more hot as like cubes. Okay. Yep. Yep. No explanation needed. No. Okay. Um, So what are we talking about this week, Amy? We have a lot to talk about. We have things that are are funny and things that are funny less, like not funny haha. So this week we're talking about Russian playwright Chekhov. Yes. And also other things. Yes. We'll get into Amy's personal stories at the end. At the end? Yes, at the end. Because people want to know. The people are here to know. Who is Anton Chekhov? And the answer is Anton Chekhov lived in the late 19th century and early 20th century. He was born in 1860 in Russia to a lower working class family. He had a very unhappy childhood. Are you surprised? I am not. Well, I mean, he grew up in Russia before the Bolshevik Revolution. We're not surprised. And he also, like, wrote really miserable comedies. They're not funny, (laughs) haha. We'll explain that joke. No, I'm just going to keep making it. We're going to keep saying it until we explain it, though. Yeah. So basically, he started writing to support his family because they fell into poverty when his dad got cheated by a contractor who was supposed to build them a house and it sounds like just didn't do that. So Toronto real estate. Toronto real estate. He actually was a doctor as well, but Chekhov, not his dad. Like a medical one? Yeah, like a medical doctor. Okay, so like a real one, not a philosopher. But he didn't make money off of being a doctor. He made money off writing, you know, like the opposite of what happens now. Right. Would you like to know why? Because Russia? Because he decided he was going to basically be like his own personal charity and (laughs) offer medical care for free to people living in poverty, like his family. So... Medicaid for all, but just Chekhov for all. Yeah, good guy Chekhov. Cool. Good guy Chekhov, Medicaid for all. Yeah, so he wrote the stories initially, like to make money and this millionaire was like hey I really like your stories I'm gonna offer you way more money he once said I have written my stories the way reporters write up their notes about fires mechanically half consciously caring nothing about either the reader or myself which you know I get it because I felt when I was reading them initially and then later watching them that uh he did not care about me Mm. but he he did seem to care about his plays which he wrote later in life but I don't don't. I don't care about them that much. No. He got married in 1901. He got married very reluctantly. He was 40 something, right? Like 38 something? Yeah, yeah. He was like older when he got married. Yeah. He was 41. He said that he was fine getting married as long as they lived in different towns and lived separately and did not really see each other or talk or canoodle or anything like that. So basically just like not being married, but he was fine being married. So they lived in different towns like not even a marriage of convenience just like a marriage of don't inconvenience me yeah it's like a marriage of name yeah he barely saw his wife and then he died four years later in germany of tuberculosis oh not the tuberculosis yeah he got the tb that's too bad (gasps) that was a good joke it was off the cuff that was good yeah classic amy didn't look at my notes she's just 
pulling out bangers right here. Yeah. Uh, his four most famous plays were written like in the last 10 years of his life. He wrote The Seagull in 1895, Uncle Vanya in 1897, The Three Sisters in 1900, and The Cherry Orchard in 1903. I ran a poll on our Twitter to ask people what their most favorite Chekhov play was, and it was strongly in favor of The Cherry Orchard. Um, so we're going to be talking about the cherry orchard today. How many followers do we have that we can have a poll on Twitter and it gets a, a strong reaction? I think we had like six votes and 75% of people wanted the cherry orchard. Oh, that's fair. So maybe we'll revisit the three sisters later, which is the other one that got some votes. But is it about agriculture? I have no idea. Okay. But this one is not. It sounds like it is, but it isn't. So by popular demand, we have the play with the gun in it. The Chekhov's gun? The gun that belongs to Chekhov? Chekhov's gun? Yes. That was made specifically for Chekhov? That gun? Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. You're welcome. It's going to come back around. The <laughs> joke and the gun. That's what it is. <laughs> When you're trying to pad your word count in an essay. <laughs> remark, remark. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so <laughs> The Cherry Orchard is a play. I'm going to tell you the entire plot right now. Are you ready for the entire plot of The Cherry Orchard? Yeah. This is the entire plot. A family is in debt and their estate is going to be auctioned off in a couple months if they can't pay. So they keep hoping for help, but then ignoring the one person trying to help them. And then they wait out the clock and they lose everything. And the gun... We'll get there. Okay. It's very waiting for Godot. It's like like nothing happens and then nothing happens mm. and then it ends. Right. So it's life. Yeah, it's life. Mm. <laughs> That's Chekhov. Very Russian of him. So the the one person <laughs> trying to help them that I mentioned is named Yermolai. He is trying to get them to convert part of their land into plots for summer cottages and rent it out. But the family doesn't want to do that because they're like, well, then we'd have to cut down the cherry orchard. And the cherry orchard is renowned for its gargantuan size. And and he's like, but that's like, that's not even that impressive. It's just big. So just rent it out and then you won't have to auction off the entire cherry orchard and lose it anyway. And they're like, no, maybe someone will help us. Who will help us? No so one? this is about like holding on to something that you don't need to hold on to to survive. Yeah, it's like holding on to tradition when the tradition is like obviously going to fade anyway. So it's like you either need to adapt or you'll sink and they just sink because they can't adapt. Very revolution. Yes, exactly. Okay. And there are some hints of the revolution. So there's some interesting dynamics in here. Mm -hmm. We've got the haves and the have-nots. We've got young and old, and we've got old money, new money. So right. breaking that up, the haves, we've got old money, like Madame Leobov. She's the one who owns the estate and the cherry orchard. And then there's her neighbor, Boris, who loaned them some money. He keeps asking for the money back, and she just keeps laughing. She's like, I don't have any money. Right. It's not funny. Haha. -ha. He's never going to see that money again. Okay. Then we've got new money, like Yermolai, the guy trying to help them by splitting up their land. And at the end, he comes back and they're like, did somebody buy the estate at the auction that we let happen because we wouldn't do anything about it? And he's like, yes, me. And I cheered. I was so happy. <laughs> a lot of people analyzing this play think he's like a bad guy and sometimes he's portrayed as a bad guy, but like he just tries to help them for so long. And then he's like, well, I see an opportunity. I'm going to take the opportunity if they're not going to take it. Someone's going to buy this land. It might as well be me. Why not? Yeah, he's a bit of a real estate developer, though, and we don't really like them. I mean, yeah, but it's fine. Like, we need housing, too, right? <laughs> yeah, but there's summer cottages. They're for rich people. Rich people don't need more housing. I guess. 
Yeah, that's true. Viva la revolution! That was, that was not even in French. That's in a language I don't even speak. It was part Spanish, part French. See, si. The old monies are all incompetent and foolish and bumbling. Old money. For instance, there is a character named Leonid, who is Madame Leobov's brother. He's addicted to billiards, and that's like his main character trait, and he talks too much. Why do I remember this from school? You didn't even read it. No, I know. That's the weird part. You read it. He's always running his mouth to the point that his 17-year-old niece tells him off for it. She's like, you would be happier if you were just quiet sometimes, you know? Yeah. And then the new money, who is Yermolai, he's like savvy, he's reasonable, he climbed his way up from a serf family, which is basically like slaves. Mm -hmm. And he represented like the rising middle class in Russia, which was a threat to the traditional social order, which was very much like upstairs, downstairs. Mm -hmm. Then we've also got the younger rich folks like Peter, who's a forever student. He's very annoying. I wrote an essay about why he's very annoying. Um, and Anya, who is the daughter of Madame Leobov, she is kind of just like dreamy. She kind of buys into Peter's philosophical BS, but she's more like, eh, I just, I'm gonna go with the flow. Like, whatever, you know? He's like a political reformist and he's he's right, but he's annoying about it. Yeah. You know when people are right, but they're like really annoying about it. Yeah, it's like, okay, I get that you're making an interesting point, but can you be a bit more charismatic about it? <laughs> it's like, can you also like just be a person instead yeah. of being like a walking textbook? <laughs> Don't yell about it. Have a discussion with me. Thank you. It's very strange. Yeah. So that was all the haves. Then we've got the have-nots. So that's kind of just split up into like the servants who are young and old. So the young servants like Yasha and Dunyasha. Yes, I know. Their names are the same. They're both not into the traditional class system. That's like having somebody named Anne and having somebody named Joanne in the same family. Well, they're not They're not siblings. They're like into each other. That makes it worse. It's like when Taylor Swift dated Taylor Lautner. Yeah, I, I was there for that. I existed. <laughs> um, so they're, the young servants are kind of not into the traditional order of things. Um, Yasha's like the kind of person who will become a revolutionary. He like hates the old ways and he's always like, ah, oh, we could just like change it, you know? Just yeah. like not do that. Dunyasha, she seems fine with the class system existing, but she's more not into the rigidity of it. Like mm. she's more of a social climber. So she dresses like a lady. She flirts with the male servants. She does things that like traditionally demure servants would not do. Right. She's pushing the boundaries. Exactly. Then we've got the old servant. His name is Fears. He is 87 years old. He's still working. <sighs> He's very nostalgic for the upstairs downstairs order. He's kind of like the Mr. Carson, but if Mr. Carson was plus dementia, and I'm not saying that to be facetious, like he very much does like kind of just go off into his own world sometimes and then people yell at him for it and it's like, he really should not be working. And I don't know why you're yelling at this old man right. for just being, you know, kind of in his own time right yeah. now. He's in his own little time bubble and he goes on little monologues about the old ways and why they're good. And it, yeah, and people are always just telling him to shut up and it's not very nice. So that's basically the plot plus the character dynamics. No, tell me about the gun. I will tell you about the gun. Okay. Um, so near the beginning, there's an estate clerk named Yepikotov and he takes out a gun. The gun. And he, TM. he pointedly says, now might be a good time to draw your attention to the fact that I always carry a loaded gun on me. Subtlety is not Chekhov's strong suit, is it? <laughs> 
it's not. It's a very gun-heavy scene. There's also another servant in that scene uh, named Charlotta, who's like cleaning a rifle. It's just very like, it's very gun-heavy. And he's like, I have this gun and okay, I'm leaving the scene now. So you might be familiar with the phrase Chekhov's gun. <gasps> that was that was me being like, yes, I'm familiar, but like being surprised for the crowd. <laughs> so Chekhov's gun is based on a phrase he famously said allegedly in the 1880s when I guess he was like in a bar or something or like in a in a book or something or in a magazine interview. I have no idea where he said it. He was saying something um, at some point in time. He said something somewhere at some point in time that was if in act one you have a pistol hanging on the wall, then it must fire in the last act. Okay. Yeah. So that was in the 1880s. Yep. This play is from 1903. Okay. You would think that he would have like developed his writing skills since then. Yes. Um, you would imagine so? I think if you're good at something and it's the one thing you're good at, keep at it. I don't know <laughs> if he just didn't care anymore or if he was just screwing with us. That gun never comes up again. Walk me through your thinking here, Amy, because I can see your expression, but our audience cannot. I was letting my silence be pregnant with my <laughs> facial expression of disbelief of you can't be Chekhov and have Chekhov's gun, but also not complete the Chekhov's gun. It does not come up again. Um, I'm going to have a brief content warning for a mention of abuse and suicide. So if you don't want to hear that, fast forward 45 seconds. Yepikotov could use the gun. He gets rejected by Dunyasha and he has very incel vibes. So I could see him either attacking her or attacking Yasha, the guy she's actually into, and being like, no one loves me, you know? Uh huh. Like, there are very poignant scenes where it could culminate in that. It also could be used for himself because he is very unstable. The other characters do speculate immediately after he says it that he is probably in danger of harming himself. Mm -hmm. Nope, none of that happens. So, okay. It's just there. <laughs> is a cherry orchard the gun here? Hear me out. Hear me out. We All right. I'm hearing you out. We have this character whose name, uh, I forget, the real estate developer guy. Yermolai. Yermolai, who's like, hey, we should sell this cherry orchard so that you can keep your house because you could put some, you know, nice cottages over there and things would be fine. And then they don't do it. And then at the end, he's like, well, we're getting rid of the cherry orchard. We're building those cottages. Yeah. So maybe Chekhov's gun is not a gun. And the reason he has a gun and it's not being used as a gun is because he's fucking with us. He definitely is. Do you remember how I said this play is like, waiting for Godot. Mm -hmm. The whole gun thing is like waiting for Godot. It's like waiting for Godun. <laughs> You're just like, okay, when's this gun gonna show up? When is this gun gonna show up? There has to be a and gun. And it doesn't. And it doesn't fucking show up. The whole play is like a play about nothing happening ever. So it's like Seinfeld. Yeah. It's like people could be doing things right now, but they don't. Right. And they could be saving the cherry orchard by splitting it up into plots but they don't. Mm -hmm. And these relationships could culminate in like people getting together, but they don't. And Yepikotov could use the gun, but he don't. I don't know. How is this a comedy? Okay. I, I'm so mad. 
I will tell you why it's, it's not a Shakespearean comedy. It's an Aristotelian comedy. Worse. Aristotelian comedy. It's not funny, haha. It's not funny, haha. Oh, also, shout out to Words About Books for freaking just swooping in and stealing our Chekhov's gun conversation before we had our Chekhov's gun conversation. I listened to their episode about Ready Player Two, and they were talking about Chekhov's gun. I was like, you're literally stealing our thunder. Well, as my coworker said, I'm not stealing your thunder. I'm just setting you up. So um, retracted immediately. And thank you, Words About Books, for setting us up for this Chekhov's gun conversation. Udabomb.com. <laughs> we love Words About Books. They should come on our show. Come on our show, Words About Books. We have books and we have words. And sometimes they are about <laughs> each other. Books about words? We have those. They're called dictionaries. <laughs> I'm so... I, can we just... I feel like we're done the episode. <laughs> now that's it for me today. <sighs> okay, so another another highlight from our highlight reel. What What is an Aristotle comedy? Can I tell you after I finish my highlight reel? Yeah. The last scenes of the play are them just awkwardly and slowly moving out of the house. Just so, so awkwardly. Then when they're gone, they lock up the house. They board it up for the winter. No one's going to be in the house for months. There's nothing in there. All the furniture is gone. The food is gone. All the people are gone, right? Uh-huh. Did they forget the fucking servants? Fears walks out. He's the old servant who never wanted anything to change and he is immediately faced with this massive change and they have also boarded him up in the house. I know it's supposed to represent that they are forgetting tradition because he is the character that represents tradition, but also I would say that's a dick move. So this old man is supposed to overwinter without any food except maybe cherries if there's still some on the trees in this house that has nothing. Like, Yermolai has bought the property. Yermolai is on the property. So technically, Fears could, like, knock on the door and be like, hey, can someone come, like, get me out of this house? Because I don't want to be locked in the house for several months with no food and slowly die. But that's not what he does. He just lays down to die. In fact, in some versions of this play, including the one I watched with Judy Dench, Dame Judy Dench. He literally falls down dead on the spot. Okay. It's a comedy, guys. <laughs> yeah, I have a concept here. It's not funny, haha. So, like, I feel like you could have a really funny, like, actually funny comedy between Yermolai and this old servant guy, right? That could be fun. That could be, like, a fun yeah. subplot. Fine. Sure. Sure. But I feel like, and I say this with love and appreciation for my um, university colleagues who are really into Russian lit, I feel like Chekhov's a little too on the nose with his symbolism. Chekhov punches you in the face with his symbolism. And it would be a great introduction to how to interpret things at the high school level. I think you're entirely correct. Because it punches you in the face. And there's a lot of parallels. And like, while it doesn't give you a lot of space for like, you know, making up your own ideas, it does give you a lot of structure to work with. Yes. It would be a very good introduction to contextually interpret symbols. Right. It's yeah. not like, oh, Fears is like, he represents poverty because he's a servant. No. Fears represents tradition because he keeps talking about tradition and he won't stop talking about 
tradition. Mm -hmm. And he is slowly getting dementia throughout the play or exhibiting symptoms of dementia Mm -hmm. in a country where tradition is falling to pieces and we're about to hit a revolution. Right. It's so much more poignant than the whole like, you know, red scare thing allegory present in like Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Yeah. I read Arthur Miller's The Crucible in high school um, is why I'm bringing it up. That's fair. And I feel like if we had read this instead, we would have interpreted it a lot clearer, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Would you like to jump into analysis? Sure, Bob. So this play is called a comedy. Right. Uh Uh-huh. And as are Chekhov's other plays, Mm -hmm. they are called comedies. They are not funny, Mm. in my opinion. Yeah. The adaptations that we watched in class were certainly not funny. They were played very straight. We were baffled. Maybe they're funnier in Russian. They, They can be played funny. They can be played as a farce and it can be funny. Right. They were not. Mm -hmm. And if our professor wanted us to see that the plays were funny, I think she should have showed us versions of the plays that were funny instead of explaining to us that the plays are funny. Not explaining, okay, they can be played funny and this is a misinterpretation, but arguing to us, no, these plays actually are funny and you're just not getting that they're funny. Because you can't argue that something is funny, Dave Chappelle. Like, it doesn't work. People either appreciate your comedy or you miss the mark. And the adaptations of the plays that we watched in class, because our prof didn't want to teach, miss the mark if that's what they were going for. If they were going for being funny, which they weren't, I think they were just going for like, this is serious classic literature and it's Russian. So it's very serious. As if a Russian person has never made a joke in their life. It's too cold to make jokes. Or a person before 1910 has never made a joke in their life. But I think it is supposed to be a comedy, but our prof wasn't telling us that. She was just like, it's, it is funny, actually. <laughs> like, you guys are all have, like, stone faces of what the fuck <laughs> is happening. It's like, guys, it's funny. Laugh. That's like all those like BBC productions from the 70s of all those Shakespeare plays that are actually supposed to be funny. Like they're Shakespearean comedies, like they're slapstick. Yeah. You know, like they're supposed to be funny. haha. Yeah. The first half of Romeo plus Juliet. And they're so fucking dry that like there's no weird inflections or like tone that could interpret them as funny. So you're watching Twelfth Night and you're just like, that's the funniest play. I know. And you're just looking at it. But it seems like this big like problem that they're cross-dressing and that it's not funny but like it should be funny and it's not being portrayed as funny and it's rough. It's supposed to be funny that they're just sticking it to the societal norms and nobody cares about anything ever. Yeah. But we're not talking about Twelfth Night. We're talking about this. So one of my classmates made a suggestion that the rest of us immediately agreed with because it made so much sense. And he said that Chekhov's plays all fit the requirements of a comedy without being funny. So maybe Chekhov was trying to play with the expectations of what a comedy is because they technically fit the definition, the Aristotelian definition of a comedy without ever having any audience member crack a freaking smile. Are you going to define that for the folks at home? I shall. So an Aristotelian comedy has an imitation of characters of a lower type who are not bad in themselves, but whose faults possess something ludicrous in them. Right, yes, okay. So this is exactly that. Yeah. And like his other plays actually do fit like the definition of a Shakespearean comedy, which is not as relevant because I don't think there was as much crossover between Russian literature and English literature as there was between Russian literature and like ancient Greek philosophy, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. 
But just to revisit, Shakespeare and comedies are about like lower characters and they do absurd things and they end in a marriage. Yeah, yeah. The new and his thing. other plays do fit into that structure. This one fits more into a Shakespearean tragedy uh-huh. where the characters are technically of a high status but a lower type and they experience a loss. Mm-hmm. Sure, Bob. Oh, by the way, do you want to explain your, your it's not funny haha joke? Because I came home and I told you about the thing yeah. with it fits the definition of a comedy without being a comedy and you said it's not funny haha Chekhov <laughs> as in Chekhov was saying like it's a comedy but it's not funny haha you know it's citing Chekhov yeah yeah um and that's been a joke within our friendship for like eight years yeah <laughs> yeah like it's just you know whenever anything sad happens but it's like kind of funny it's, like, it's not funny haha <laughs> or like the state of the world's not funny haha but it's kind of like funny interesting you know <laughs> yeah that's where we're at now, since the versions we watched were not played for laughs, I decided to write my essay about why is this play considered a comedy? And I wrote it about like how this one character fits into the Aristotelian definition of a comedy. I don't know if this is what I intended, but in some ways, one might consider my essay a comedy roast. Ah! Because it's about comedy, and it's a freaking roast of this character. Oh my god, I tore him to shreds. I did not realize how much I tore this character a new one, but uh, it was Peter, the forever student. Yes, yes. Who just walks around being a jerk to everyone the whole time. Yeah. The philosophy major TM. Yeah. He's always like soliloquizing about metaphysics. Mm. It's like, ugh, can you just get to like one point? Just make your point and then stop talking so we can listen to other things. Use less words. (laughs) So in my essay. In this essay, I will. In this essay, I will. So Peter's one of the few characters in Chekhov who thinks about the world instead of just navel gazing. But the audience isn't like, oh, what a visionary. Like, what a insightful individual. The audience is like, wow, what a douche canoe, you know? We don't sympathize with him because he's so ludicrous. So he thinks he understands everything, but he doesn't understand anything because he can't even understand, like, the people around him on a basic human level. Hmm. He used to be the tutor of... Madame Leobov's son and Anya's brother. Mm -hmm. And that guy died. Like, he died. Of boredom? (laughs) No, you're thinking of the audience. Ah, yes. Um, I think it was like an illness or something. But Too bad. Yeah, at the beginning, Madame Leobov is like, oh yeah, he's like staying in the the guest house for now. He's just waiting to like, till everyone comes and then he'll come like, say hi. Uh, And then he like barges in and he's like, oh, Madame Leobov, I missed you so much. I just couldn't wait. And it's like, she's grieving her son. Do you not think maybe your presence reminds her of him? Do you not think perhaps there's a reason you should not be here right now? Perhaps. You know? Yeah. He sees the family's struggle of like losing the cherry orchard. Yeah. Like, it's it's great that they're losing the cherry orchard to us. He's known them for years. And he's basically in their social class. He sees it as a microcosm of the change happening in society. And he can't empathize with like them personally experiencing a loss. Peter represents what the audience is supposed to be getting. I think, yeah, Peter's here to hit us over the head with like the message that we're supposed to take away, but he's not supposed to take it away. It's annoying, so we don't care. Yeah. He's just like, oh yeah, here comes the new societal order. It's going to be awesome. But he's like, to their face, to their face, he says (laughs) You know, uh-huh. they're like losing their their family home, like their ancestral home. And he's like, yeah, this is awesome. Heck yeah, change. And they're like, can you give us a minute? <laughs> 
Yeah, he like, Peter says the quiet parts out loud. Yeah. Also, he knows Anya has a huge crush on him. He is clearly into her as well because he, she walks out of the scene and he calls her my son, my springtime. Does he say this to her face? No, he does not because he's too busy saying to her face that he's glad her family's losing her house. <sighs> And that he is above love. Oh. He just is is too smart for emotion. Right, 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 right. You know, he's one of those men who's like, well, like, emotion is like a female thing. So I don't need emotions. I don't need that. And that's just our primal instincts. And I am just above that because I'm an evolved human being. Oh, what's that stupid sexuality that's not a real sexuality? Sapiosexual? I'm, I'm actually a sapiosexual. I'm actually attracted to an intelligence so like it's fine to be asexual it's fine to be aromantic but that's not what he is it's annoying the stage direction specifically says he's overcome with emotion when she leaves but when she's there he's like and we need to talk to girls we love an emotionally unavailable man you know those pseudo intellectuals with no emotional intelligence that's what he is us yeah okay <laughs> So, like, he's right that the orchard is a symbol of Russian serfdom, okay? He's right. Yeah. He's right that it grows on the backs of the family slaves, and so has, like, the Russian social order up to this point. He's right that, like, it's good that that social order and representations of it are dismantling. But he just misses so much other stuff that it's kind of like a broken clock is right twice a day, you know? Like, he's got the spirit, but he's a little confused. If you just keep throwing darts at a dartboard eventually you're gonna hit it and he just talks all the time but eventually some right stuff comes out right he criticizes the upper class for avoiding manual work and it's like ah what about you what have you been doing he thinks carrying library books counts as hard labor i mean my shakespeare anthology was heavy (laughs) he can't see that like he's part of the order that he's criticizing you know Mm. Yeah, he's like blind to it. We're supposed to see the parody in his hypocrisy. Oh, he's the funny haha. He's the funny haha. He also has this big dramatic fight with Madame Leobov where he criticizes her shallow relationship with her lover. And she's like, well, you're childish because you don't understand love and you should be nicer to my daughter. And he's like, it's all over between us. And he like storms out and it's this big dramatic moment. And like two seconds later, Anya walks in laughing about how he fell down the stairs <laughs> okay now that's funny haha and then they like carry him back in and they're like well that was awkward so like we know he's a comedic character by the way they cut that out of a lot of the serious versions or they like really downplay it that one funny scene they're like oh, peter fell down the stairs <gasps> What happened to his ankle? Then that happens at a party where um, they're celebrating like the last day that like the results of the auction have not been announced. And then during the party, Yermolai walks in and he's like, the auction's done. I'm coming back from the auction. And Peter's just like gleeful to see that Yermolai has bought the land. Of course he is. And it, like it's fair because Yermolai's family used to work that land as slaves. So it's like getting it back from the labor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like reclaiming the land that was built on the backs of his family. It's good, but Peter's not supposed to say that, you know? No. Like, Peter, this is a bit too on the nose. Can you tone it down, please? Thank you. Can you, like, tone it down, like, one notch? Yeah. And then he's, like, so happy when they're leaving and they're really awkwardly saying goodbye to, like, the house. And he's like, hail new life. And then Madame Leobov is like, farewell, old life. And he's like, we're gonna miss the train. Let's go. Um, And it's like, yes, we can be happy these 
former slave owners lost everything because they were being dumb. He is one of them. Yeah. Also, he hasn't made any tangible attempts to like fix the problems in Russia. He's just like a commentator. Pontificating about it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so that whole essay was just a roast. Did your prof like that essay or no? I mean, I got an A in the class, so I can only assume that I did okay on it. Or she bell curved. <laughs> or she bell curved really hard. So do you have a rating scale for me on this book? Oh, wow. Okay, on a scale of an unfired gun to buying a whole ass cherry orchard. Okay. How would you rate this play? Okay. I would say that this play is like an acrobat in the middle of a party. This play has an acrobat in the middle of their party. Did I mention that they have an acrobat nope. just doing cartwheels in the middle of their party for no reason? Fun. Because it's like fun, but it also doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. It's like, why are we doing this? You know, like right. this is fine, but why are we doing it? Because <laughs> opulence. Because, yeah. But like the opposite of that. Right. It's just, I didn't need it. I would have been totally fine if I had never read this play for the rest of my life. But you took the class. I think if I saw a comedic version of it that really played up all the funny elements and it was funny haha I think I might change my mind but all the versions I've seen so far are like I could have gone without that you know yeah I could have taken or left that acrobat like they're never entertaining you enough for you to be like that was worth it yeah yeah it's like that was two hours yep that was two hours I spent of my unrefundable time yeah Hmm. I have something to share with y'all so we have a little clip to share with you from a partner podcast in, in a partner in the sense that they are also in the indie podcast community um, and they are fun and they talk about books sometimes. So I'm a sophisticate and so can you. Okay. Has the best name for a podcast ever. They talk about the canon in all the senses. So like movies, music, books. They've talked about Virginia Woolf. They were much more sympathetic to Virginia Woolf than I was on my first read. I really recommend that episode and just all the episodes. They're a really fun time and I realized as I was drawing them that this shirt has shading that looks like mesh. I hope they don't get offended that I'm drawing a shirt that looks like mesh because that's a very distinct fashion choice. (laughs) And they weren't. They were very understanding. So here is a little bit about their show and we will be back after to wrap up and talk about our 50th episode. Hello, I'm a sophisticate and so can you. Is the name of our podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony. And I'm another of your hosts, Sydney. And we're two queer millennials with ADHD. Who have been lying about our own cultural literacy. If you've ever been in a situation where you pretended to know more than you do about an important movie or a piece of literature. Yeah, or like a super cool band. Then this is the show for you. This is a show where we engage with the canon so that you don't have to. Topics for discussion will include such things as Is Carrie Brownstein the coolest person? Can anyone who likes the movie Chinatown be trusted? Why Tom Waits? Why? All of these questions and more will be answered on every episode of I'm a Sophisticate and So Can You. Available wherever you find your podcast. And we're back. We're back. 
<laughs> so to go check out I'm a Sophisticate and so can you. And for us, we are coming up on our 50th episode. Isn't that wild? That's a fucking trip. I can't believe how long we've been doing this. Yeah, it's seen many seasons of our lives and it will continue because the 50th episode is not our last episode. Come on, guys. We got shit to do. <laughs> but it's going to be a fun Still one. We're going to talk about the Henry ad. Yeah, we got to do that at some point in time. We're going to be talking about a book that we've mentioned many times, but that we did not technically read in our undergrad. Speak for your fucking self. All right. I, I didn't read it in my undergrad. Station Eleven. Yeah, by Emily St. John Mandel. Sure. So keep an eye out for that. We will be back in two weeks to talk about that. If you want to talk to us before then about this or anything else, or if you want to like share some favorite unsighted moments, and maybe we'll shout you out in our 50th episode, in our little anniversary episode, and we can talk about you talking to us. You want to do that? You can find us at Unsighted Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. And then after our 50th <laughs> episode, we might have some special guests for some time because... Because why, Amy? What happened? Because, why are we doing that? Because Amy... <laughs> Amy went on a trip pun intended, and <laughs> fell and broke or rebroke or just injured again my ankle. I have potentially yeah. broken this ankle three times now. Um, either that or it didn't heal for eight years. <laughs> and I may or may not get surgery. So if I disappear for a little while, it's because I am injured. I feel like the long form version of that story would be a really good like listener story to submit to Reddit on Wiki. Oh, yes. I mean, like I'm walking on it like fully, like just... I've been still doing my yoga. It's weight bearing. It's flexible. I have front to back mobility again. My knee and my ankle aren't connected. They don't speak to each other right now very well. Um, That's probably just the injury. But yeah, like I'm fine. I just have to wait six weeks to see a surgeon to be for him to be like mm, yeah we're not gonna do anything or yeah we're gonna do something so while amy's doing that i will probably bring on my partner to talk about the haunting of hill house so we'll see we'll see if that happens in the meantime thank you for listening and we will see you in two weeks and as always we're excited unavailable And welcome back to Unsighted with the Adequate Claps.